Have you wanted to invest in real estate, but not sure actually how to get started? Today's guest and I talk about 16 different ways to earn money by investing in real estate. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back. I'm really, really excited to bring back our guest today to talk all about real estate. Last time he was on the show, we had to be secretive around his true identity. And no, I still haven't interviewed Batman. But I'm talking about the physician behind the blog, Passive Income MD. As his blog is so accurately named, he specializes in passive income strategies. While not all real estate is passive, actually some of it's really hard demanding work, it can be a great supplement to your current investments and your income. There's so much to cover, so let's just jump right in and talk with our guest, Peter Kim from PassiveIncomeMD.com and Curbside Real Estate. Peter, thank you so much for being back on the show. Really excited to jump into this giant list that you've created for all of us. Cool. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Of course. So we've all heard invest in real estate. Heck, physicians here have heard it directly from the show many times. We've talked about buying your first home. We chatted about physician mortgages with Doug Krause in a great episode on that. We had Vina from Enzo Multifamily talking about investing in multifamily, but we've never done a full exhaustive list of how to actually invest in real estate. Really excited to jump into this. So Peter's put together a list for us today of 16 different ways that we can invest in real estate. And Peter, I think we just jump right in, right down your list. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. It's funny. I mean, I had been writing the blog for a while and I've been talking about investing in real estate, invest in real estate as well. And I realized, wait a minute, I've never come up with a list myself. Uh, I've talked about most of the things on the list, but I've never really put it together in one place. So happy to go over it with you guys. I invest in a bunch of these things, but uh, I found there are a lot of other things that I don't invest in that I'd love to learn more about. And so that's why I put it all together. Mm-hmm. I think it all starts with direct ownership. I mean, that's kind of what everyone can understand and wrap their mind around buying a rental property renting it out to somebody, being the landlord, and collecting rent on it. And I think that's where a lot of us, when we think about wealth and real estate, it kind of starts there. Ryan, you have some rental properties, is that right? Or Yeah, we have nine of them. All right. That's amazing. <laughs> have you done a show about that yet? No, 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 we haven't. It's been a lot of work, and I'm finding that as the number got bigger, actually, it's becoming more work than I like. And so we're actually looking at doing some more. Um, I, I have invested in some syndication stuff. Yeah. I've invested in in some of the crowdfunding sites. And I think we're going to start looking at doing more of that just because it takes a lot of time when you get that number up. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that is one of the cons that people talk about when investing in direct ownership and having their own rental real estate. It's the management part. Mm-hmm. People don't want that headache. And I guess they're scared about getting calls in the middle of the night for toilet clogs or plumbing issues. But honestly, I don't know. I mean, I have management for a lot of my bigger properties. I mean, the ones that are apartment buildings or even large. I mean, I make sure I get good management in place. And that kind of helps mitigate some of that, Mm -hmm. those issues there. You know, there are different ways to kind of buy real estate in terms of rental properties. There's your single family homes. There's your duplex, triplex, quads. 
And then there's your apartment buildings or multifamily, which they consider anything over five units under one roof, I guess, in a sense, is considered that multifamily building. I think definitely when you get to that stage, for sure, it makes sense to have management. Hire professional, eat the 6 to 10%, depending on what that is, that management fee, and have somebody else take care of it so you don't really have that headache. Yeah, even um, with my single family ones, we have a uh, property manager in place. And it's not just me. I should actually, full disclosure, like it's my brother and I have kind mm-hmm. of partnered in and done this. Yeah, I mean, I partnered too. I mean, with my first apartment building that I bought, I partnered with another physician actually, and he was a neighbor of mine. Nice. And I talked a little bit about that, but that was our first voyage into multifamily. And I'm glad I actually had somebody else to do it with because mm-hmm. it kind of cut the risk in half. <laughs> and uh, we learned along the way, obviously, partnerships aren't easy, but I thought that was a great way to get in. It definitely is. So we've got three ways that we've already talked about. Single family, the duplex, triplex, quads, where you have a little bit more, uh, let's say, cash flow, because there's two, three, four different doors that are there, but yeah. uh, they're still tougher to manage. And then we've got uh, apartment buildings that you can do. And there's different ways to invest in apartments. You can invest yourself. You can invest with a group of people through uh, maybe a syndication. And I know that if you're listening to this and that sounds of interest, please go listen to the show with Vina from NZ Multifamily talking all about how to invest in multifamily. So we got three down. We've got 13 to go. So let's keep going down our list. Yeah, let's let's keep rolling then. But you can also own retail, right? I mean, a lot of us know these kind of strip malls or there's something called a triple net lease that I've written a little bit about that a lot of physicians kind of find themselves into, which is where you own retail property, but they take care of their own management. They take care of all the expenses on their own. And so really it's kind of like a low maintenance way of kind of owning some retail properties. And those things might be like CVS or Dollar General. You'll often see that. Mixed-use properties are where they have kind of retail as well as sometimes residential on top. You see those buildings all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of those things are getting built where you have like retail on the bottom floor and then residential above that. Or and then there's also something called industrial, which I had never heard about until, I don't know, a couple of years ago where basically you're just buying warehouses. Mm-hmm. And especially in certain parts of town, you probably know where they are. There's like just a whole bunch of warehouses there. And a lot of businesses, they need that storage space. The cool thing is you're not managing tenants, you know, you managing companies who usually take care of things on their own. Other things to own, self-storage facilities. People have a lot of stuff, man, these days. <laughs> I know. Uh, in fact, we probably have way too much stuff. They need to read some of those other blogs out there on minimalism. I mean, I, I, I'm not perfect at it. I probably have way too much more stuff, but I haven't gotten to the point where I need to rent out storage facilities yet, but people own those things. And, and, um, and they do really well. I mean, they cash flow yeah. really well, but I inherently have a problem with people taking like storage units and needing that space unless it was like, hey, I'm going to do something super badass and go take six months and travel the world and I don't need to be have an apartment and I need a place to put things like cool. But for the most part, people are, are taking out these things and then buying more stuff and it's like, eh, it's not the most financially... Yeah. Half the time when I talk to my friends who have storage facilities, they kind of forget what's in there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Clearly they don't need it. Yeah, they probably don't need it. The cool thing is you don't deal with tenant issues. It's kind of like just renting out space to people. That can be nice in cash flow as well if you can kind of get yourself into these. The good thing is people say in downtimes or down economies, they tend to do quite well. People still need space for their storage. Something else that does really well in a little harder economic times are mobile home parks. Hmm. That's become popular as of late. I think people are starting to see some sort of shift in the economy, maybe in the real estate market. So people are starting to kind of move towards mobile home parks where, honestly, again, you just own the land, you rent it out, space, plots to to mobile homes. 
that's one way to get in either by yourself or honestly, you can be part of funds that actually buy mobile home park funds. And so I've looked into a bunch of those as well. And, and a lot of those end up on some of these crowdfunding companies and crowdfunding sites I've talked about. They definitely do. I know those are a little more capital intensive here. That always kind of blows my mind. Like mobile home parks are a good real estate. Inv- just, I don't know, it feels like an oxymoron a little bit to me, but it, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's the numbers. It's how it works. So yeah, people need a place to live. It's an affordable way of living in a space and having those mobile homes. And so people will maybe give up luxuries in tough times, but at the end of the day, you need a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. So that's not a bad thing. Yep. You can also own land. That's not too hard of a concept to understand is you own land that may be developed or probably undeveloped and kind of wait for the right situation, another buyer to come along. If you're in the path of progress, oh man, you can hit it big. I've actually experienced and talked to a bunch of physicians actually who have done such a thing, you know, wherever they kind of started their practices, they bought up some land either around the hospital or kind of in rapidly gentrifying or growing areas. Ultimately, somebody, a buyer, a developer would come along and try to scoop that thing up. Mm-hmm. And so that's great. Unfortunately, it just sits there. You can't really make much money off of it unless you throw up a billboard or something on it. <laughs> or, or get lucky and cell phone tower needs to Exactly. Up. Cell phone towers too. That is a business, putting up cell phone towers on your apartment buildings, on your land, and these kind of things. Yeah, that always blew my mind. My dad does development. I don't know how much I've actually talked about this on air, but uh, my dad's been a developer for, I hate to date him, 40 plus years. He's <laughs> developed like 5 million square feet. Wow. He's done lots and lots of stuff. A lot of the time they were looking at cell phone towers, being able to put that up carve out the parcel and then flip that actually as income source to an investor. So there's investors out there who literally just buy cell phone towers because the companies take long, long leases on these things. Yeah. And then obviously he developed the rest of it. So I think that's the only thing really that maybe throw up a billboard, throw up a cell phone tire, but I don't like land in that sense because it doesn't cash flow. It costs you money and it's highly speculative out of probably everything on this list. Unless you know something that others don't, land is really speculative. You have to be willing to sit on it. It's kind of dead money for a while. Yep. And then maybe you can expect a nice payday at the end. Hope. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, quick story. There's a, around my hospital, I just heard about it yesterday, that there's a couple that bought just kind of like a little area of land right by our hospital. And they bought it for $2 million about, I think about 20 years ago. Eventually, a restaurant came and built on top of it. But the hospital actually approached them and offered over $30 million for it. <laughs> wow. So uh, yeah, that was just from the land. They were able to put something on it to cash flow a little bit. They sat on it and eventually these hospitals, man, they just, as they grow, they want to just take up more and more space around it. So it can be a good play ultimately. You just have to know what you're doing and you're right. Either figure out a way to cash flow it or sit on it. And, well, I, and I think that's what it is. Yeah. It's figuring out a way to cash flow it. So you might be able to do something. I always thought it was fascinating, this tiny house. I guess they're single family slash multifamily, if you will, but like the tiny house phenomenon that's been going. I think if you're going to buy land and it's able to be zoned that way, weird maybe, but I always have this little idea of like having a little village of tiny houses and it kind of <laughs> like being like Airbnb or something like that, or maybe even long-term for people who, who just want a smaller place, but that would be a way to turn around and maybe you're in the path of progress or whatever, but actually make land cash flow. Yeah, you're going to have your own village someday, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds so weird <laughs> when I say it like that. And I probably should have thought that through before I put it on air. But I really do. I think of this like, you no, know, but, but there's like I 15 think, little tiny houses. I'm thinking like yeah. in Vegas, people want something different, but still be close to the strip. That could work. Or in San Diego. No, it's here. a housing solution. It's a housing solution in tough yep. areas. I mean, I, I can understand or high demand areas for sure. Well, and then it's um, super trendy right now. So Absolutely. 
let's just keep rolling down the list, I guess. Yep. The other thing you can do with owning rental property is owning just short-term rentals or Airbnb. This is kind of a big thing these days with all the internet and shared economy and stuff. Airbnb, VRBOs, people are making good money on this. But I've also noticed that a lot of the laws are changing. And that's the problem. It's always a risk. It's a political risk, I guess, a regulatory risk. Mm-hmm. I was actually looking at a property you know, last year where it would have been a great Airbnb. And then they just changed the laws in that whole town. They limit the number of those that are available. So honestly, it became a bad play. So luckily, I didn't buy it. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a funny story about this. So I have a buddy from college. And in college, he was a real estate guy. Obviously, this is you'll hear this and go, man, that's a pretty aggressive strategy and risk tolerance. But he would actually, down here in Mission Beach, because we went to USD, where all the college kids kind of lived. And obviously, there were some older people. But during the year, the nine months of school, rent was, let's call it, two grand for a four-bedroom house by the beach. But in the summer, it'd be two grand a week, not a month. Mm-hmm. And so what he was doing was he was going out and he was leasing out a whole place, putting someone else in by subletting. But he'd do a full year-round lease and maybe pay a little bit more, like 2500 So he might be losing a little bit or breaking even the nine months, but then he'd be generating a ton of cash over the summer. This is before Airbnb and all that. He still has those. He did it with like seven houses. And so he paid for all his school. He ended up finishing USD, which is a private school at 25K a year, paid off all of that. He's still doing it to this day because he <laughs> makes so much money. He's never bought the house. He just takes out year-long leases and then is doing this. So like with this strategy, if it's there's amazing. a spread, you could end up taking a year lease doing it. I mean, there's, this is not passive, right? But this is another way that you could technically do it where you're not even forking out the million dollars per house to do that. He's just making the spread and managing it. And Airbnb allowed him to leverage this like crazy and have a much bigger market because during school he was hustling, trying to find people to rent his place. It's funny when I saw this on your list, I was like, I know we got to challenge because it's so different. That's awesome. Uh, that for is that. awesome. Yeah, if you think about it, he was really not putting any capital in. I mean, maybe a security time. deposit in the beginning. It's time about and, his and time. security. Right. Obviously, there's a lot of risk. He doesn't have a tenant. He's eating a month or whatever. Sure. He never had it where it went vacant because all these things are a block from the beach or on the bay. Oh, yeah. In their older homes, I mean, it's just how San Diego is in the area, but he always had renters in it, but there's some risk, a lot of risk yeah. involved in signing that kind of thing. Just another way to make money. Yeah. He figured it out. It sounds like that's mm-hmm. awesome. Yep. Yeah. Next on the list is something you're probably familiar with REITs. Yep. <laughs> uh, these are real estate investment trusts. Essentially they are uh, almost like mutual funds for rental property or real estate. I'd say mm-hmm. we either call it public or private and the public ones are ones that are traded on the stock market big, huge companies that are, you know, well-regulated, professional management. I don't know. Do you invest in REITs as well? or? Yeah, I, I used to do a little bit more, but as we increased our actual like tangible real estate with my single families and some syndication stuff, I've been paring back some of that exposure personally. If I didn't own any real estate outside, it's a great way to get exposure to yeah. real estate without getting your hands dirty, if you will. Yeah, I feel the same way. But since I have other options, <laughs> other yeah. ways I'm investing in real estate, I do more of these private REITs as well, too. I mean, these are the same kind of thing. They're just not publicly traded. You have to seek out certain companies or platforms that put these deals together. A lot of them are available only to accredited investors, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And you, a lot of times you can find them on these crowdfunding sites. I don't know how much you've talked about that term on your Actually, uh, not much. Podcast. So if you want to just quickly give a definition, I think that'd be Ye- helpful. 
It's really just a designation. And it really, again, there are certain qualifications that qualify you as a accredited investor. That's whether you personally make over $250,000 for the last two years and expectation that will continue. I think it's 300000 as a couple, it if is. I remember. Yep. Either that or you have like a million dollars in net worth excluding your primary home. I think those are the three major qualifications. There may be more. But um, if you qualify that, um, then in the eyes of like the SEC and the eyes of, yes, the government, you're a little bit more of a sophisticated investor. And so you're able to kind of actually get into some more deals that isn't available to other people. I don't know if Realty Shares has this where you can invest with them without being accredited in like their fund. Is that the one that has the debt piece so you can come in and just invest for a certain? I think you're finding more and more of that in some of these crowdfunding platforms. They are giving more and more options to non-accredited investors. The thing is, it's oftentimes it's in the form of some sort of fund that mm-hmm. you can put your money in. It's not necessarily you're investing in single deals, but you're right. A lot of them do have it like a fund rise. You know, a company like Rich Uncles or these kind of things have those things. Realty Mogul, I think, has also now a Mogul REIT. And I know uh, we're going to get to hard money lending, but that almost feels yeah. kind of like that, where you're not picking the deal. You're just kind of saying, here's my money and you give me back interest. What you're actually referencing here with the private REITs, let's say, you know, Realty Share is a good one. You see a deal. Let's make up a deal. It's a multifamily deal. They're looking for $3 million bucks and minimum investments, 25000 and but they're saying, hey, you need to be accredited. But you actually can choose where your money is going into these type of deals. Whereas what I just had brought up was a fund, if you will, that's going to yeah. invest in several assets. You don't get to pick or choose. You just put your money in. They're going to give you back some type of return. Right. I mean, that's a good option for some people as well. I do personally invest in some private REITs and funds as well. Some other ways, a little bit more obscure. <laughs> yeah, I would call it a little bit more advanced real estate I would, investing. I would definitely say a lot more advanced <laughs> in this one. Yeah. And this one is something called tax liens. It's surprising what's out there. I mean, there are people, when you don't pay your taxes, this is when you learn you don't actually truly own your home, mm-hmm. oftentimes all on your own. If you're not paying taxes, the government can take it from you. And that does happen, surprisingly. The government owns that home and it's in the form of a tax lien and they actually auction those off. So investors oftentimes will take ownership of these liens and figure out how to kind of either dispose of that property or honestly, they take it, become a rental property or something like that. So knowing how to find these through the auctions, knowing how to really handle these things, uh, navigate this world is kind of tricky. But there's some people who do it exclusively and do it really, really well. Yeah, I'd say this one, you really need to partner with an expert to learn how to do that. This is very advanced stuff. It's not that the topics are advanced. It's that it's hard to break into. It's hard to make sure that you're investing in the correct stuff. And this is a spot where people could potentially take advantage of someone who's not in the know, doesn't want to be hands-on. This is, I don't think, passive at all. But this is definitely a way to invest in real estate. It's just a very different, different way, way more advanced way. I think back when the Great Recession hit around 2008, these tax liens for people, investors that had some cash, they were actually doing pretty well in that time because a lot of homeowners couldn't pay even their property taxes. So their homes were getting kind of taken by the government and these kind of things. So anyone who um, had cash at that time was was killing it. Did you hear about the HOA fiasco that they were doing? They had HOA debt. This is a big thing in Vegas. I know it hit a couple places across the country, but thankfully it doesn't exist now. But the HOAs were not getting paid because all these homes were going back to the banks or just people weren't paying the bank, but the bank couldn't process it because the bank was hoping to just to survive itself. 
So HOAs were cash strapped and they're like, what the heck do we do? No one's paying their dues or very few people. Uh We needed all this money to pay for landscape and whatever. So there was funds out there buying HOA debt and then coming and saying, Hey, we're going to buy this at 25 cents on the dollar. So you get immediate liquidity so you can go pay the bills and do everything else. Then these funds would turn around, hit up the homeowner and say, Hey, we've now bought your HOA debt. We're putting you into collections. We're doing this, 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 or you pay us X amount of fee, like a flat fee of 2000 bucks, whatever that legal maximum was, they were just underneath it. And so maybe the person only owed like $600 because their HOA was only $30 a month, but they were having to pay like two grand to get rid of this thing. I mean, it was a, a very interesting scenario and has really shaped, at least in Vegas, the whole way that that's changed. I feel like that was a slimy way to do it, but yeah, it wasn't just tax liens at that time. It was anyone who could put a lien on the house and HOAs can put a lien on the house. Yeah, it, it was crazy. It was kind of uh, during that time, trust me, people who are opportunistic found ways to yeah. to make some money. <laughs> yep, um, and the next couple of things on the list is kind of like being the bank. Uh, it's nice to be the bank in some ways. One of those is by investing in notes. What that is essentially is it's basically owning mortgages. This is something I learned later on is that I thought all mortgages went through the big banks. That's just what I thought. Everybody mm-hmm. on that. But surprisingly, I mean, there are companies, there are private equity companies, there are people that own these mortgages or what is otherwise called notes. Basically notes, I guess it's like an IOU. I owe you X amount. So that's really what a mortgage is at the same way, right? I owe you X amount and I'm paying you your principal plus interest over this long. So there's a way to invest in these notes and basically buy up mortgages mm-hmm. in, in a small way. And so you are like the bank and they pay you with interest and they pay you with principal over time. And there are ways to buy performing and non-performing notes, I mean performing that people are actively actually paying their back their notes. There are non-performing notes where people stop paying them. And you can usually buy those again at cents on the dollar. And if you can take that and actually get them to start paying again, pretty hey, bonus. Hefty return. Yeah, yeah, pretty hefty return. But again, it's a little bit more advanced. There are nice little books on it that I've seen. I've actually bought one because I want to read up on it. Right now, it's not for me, but honestly, a lot of people do quite well with it. So there's first trust deeds or second trust deeds. There's things. And let's put this in a very easy way to explain this. Peter wants to go buy a house. It's $200,000. He doesn't have the 200,000 and he's at the limit. The bank won't lend him money, but he's like, man, I got 20% down. I want to go do this or 30% down. I want to go buy this house. It'd be a good cash flow. He could actually approach me and I could say, yeah, sure, Peter, I'll do that. I'm going to do it for 7%. So it'll cost a little bit more than the traditional bank, but he couldn't go get traditional financing. But in his rental property, let's say you put 30% down, I need to put 140,000 down. I secure it to the property itself. Peter puts his 60 down and he owns the property, cash flow, he handles it all. If Peter defaults or walks away, 2008 happens, everyone was walking away. If Peter decides to walk away, whatever it is, I, as the bank, because I gave him the note, I'm secured against the property. I can come and take the property. Now there's a whole legal way of doing that, but to make this easy, that is how you can actually become the bank. You can't do this on primary residences. So the home that Peter lives in now, but there's a lot more laws and protections around that. You can't charge a very high interest rate, but on rental property, I could charge Peter 14% if I wanted to. And Peter agreed to it. If that was the only way 
that he was going to get that. So those are first trust deeds. If he had a note on it and needed to access some liquidity from it, and for some reason couldn't take out, let's say a HELOC or, or whatever, I could come put a second trust deed on the property, charge a significantly higher interest rate. I mean, those things are probably 14 plus percent on that, but you now no longer have the ability to take back the property because you have someone ahead of you, which is probably going to be the primary bank that was done. So I just want to kind of give some examples on this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this flows into the next one, which is hard money lending in that, but this is one way of doing it. But I just want to give a very realistic example of how we could explain. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you, Ryan. The next one you mentioned is hard money lending. And it sounds kind of cool, actually, hard money lending. (laughs) Uh, I had no idea what that was for a while until I started, honestly, until I started getting to some of these crowdfunding companies and lending money out. What that really is, is essentially you are just lending money to people, usually on a shorter term. And it's usually not so much a long-term mortgage or loan. It's oftentimes for either developers, fix and flippers to go and borrow some quick cash, do what they need to do, get out of the property, make some money, and then pay you back. And that happens a lot in the fix and flip space. And those terms are honestly high return, high ROI usually collateralized against the property, meaning, again, if they default, you also get the property. I mean, they're shorter term, anywhere from six months to a year and a half. And I'd always gotten asked, why don't they just go to the bank? You know, why do they need you to Mm -hmm. kind of lend them money at 12% or 15%? The thing is, oftentimes when they do these fix and flips or these kind of things, they can't get conventional lending. First of all, it also takes a long time to get it. So sometimes people need to go buy these properties. Hey, I got this property I can go buy right now. I need it tomorrow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I need it next week. I can't go through this process of getting a conventional loan over six weeks, 45 days. And so they'll they'll go to hard money lenders. There's a whole business around this. Really, the crowdfunding sites have really kind of stepped in there and filled this void where the average investor or someone like me is kind of connected to that world so I can actually invest my money into some of this. Have you done any of it? I've done one deal through a crowdfunding, but a long time ago, I actually worked for a hard money lender and Ah. uh, it was fascinating to see some of the deals you underwrite and how that works. It was one of my first jobs out of grad school. It was really fun to be on the underwriting side to see how you go about this, how they price. Because really what hard money lenders do, and you didn't touch on this and um, I'm happy to jump in, is the hard money lender doesn't have the money himself half the time, more than half the time. They're borrowing it from a group of investors and then they're loaning it out to another group that needs the money and then they make the spread. And usually it's about a point or 1%. So let's just say in our example, Peter needs money for his rental property and he's going to do a fix and flip type thing, which we're going to explain in just a minute what we're referencing, but he's going to buy this house and then sell it off pretty quick. We're going to give him a six month note and we're going to charge him 12%. Well, I, as the hard money lender, don't have that money, the 140,000. So I'm going to go find a group of investors that want to earn 11% or 10%. And so now I'm going to facilitate, I'm bringing the people who have the money to the people who need the money. And I'm going to broker the deal. You have to be licensed real estate agent or broker to actually broker to do this, but then I'll earn the spread and service the loan, which means I'll make sure Peter's paying on time and doing that. And then I'll pay out my investor as the hard money lender paying out the investor. So it's a fascinating world. I've never lent like that other than a crowd, uh, crowd yeah. fund deal, but it's a fascinating world. 
I mean, these crowdfunding companies, that's essentially what they do. They're the go-between. And, you know, if you want to know a good list, I can plug. <laughs> I have a list Absolutely. of my site. Plug it uh, away. Well, I know, it's just a list on my site, the best real estate crowdfunding site. So these are all sites that I've used personally. They act as that middleman where people need money for these deals. They come to these platforms. They're able to, because of regulatory changes that happened in like 2012, 2013, they're able to put it up online and show it to accredited investors and say, look, this person's looking for, like you said, $800,000. And so investors are able to kind of chip away, put in 500, 1,000, 5,000 to kind of eat up that debt. And yeah, they facilitate that. So it's a pretty fascinating world. It's something that I've actually been pretty heavily involved in the last three, four years. Oftentimes, you can get some pretty nice returns. Yeah, the only disclaimer I'd kind of give on that is they haven't really seen a market cycle where they're going to experience a significant downturn. Most of these weren't around for the 2008, eight, nine depression, basically. Just be careful. We haven't seen it through a full market cycle yet. Great technology. It's really expanding the investment options out there for everyone, but use a little bit of caution and obviously due diligence when looking at these options. Yeah, no, I think that's important, Ryan. Absolutely. And the last thing is to do it yourself. (laughs) So fix and flip. I think we've all watched those TV shows on HGTV, and they make it look easy. Oh, uh, it's yeah. not that easy. <laughs> I know, it's not. You, you buy a property, you renovate it, fix up the kitchen, fix up this, and boom, turn around and get some cash out of it. And it seems pretty lucrative, but you can get caught. If it's a downturn or you're not doing it right, it's a business. Mm-hmm. And in no way is it passive. But yeah, there are some people that do this, and they do it really well. That's not me. I've never actually done one. I was in a deal actually where we actually bought a property to fix and flip and then I think we chickened out a little bit. But I actually regret it because <laughs> it would have done so well. Yeah. Knowing, hey, knowing what the market know. Yeah, knowing what the market has done over the last couple of years, uh, I think we could have just sat on it and it would have done really well. Anyways, yeah, so some people do it themselves. And or you can honestly kind of live vicariously through those TV shows, which I do now, and I have a good time watching those. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're entertaining and obviously they've got a good way of selling. Uh, that there's tons of people who do this, uh, either individuals who are just contractor, carpenter type guys and gals that are really good at this stuff. I can barely use a hammer. I joke and my wife is uh, significantly more handy than I am. You know, it's one of those that I've hired out to do some stuff. We mm-hmm. had a property that we were going to keep long term and then it ended up being like we could flip it really quick and we ended up doing that. But I don't actively fix and flip. That's right. not my market. I mean, I think the closest thing I've done to this is, you know, when we have a our apartment building, somebody moves out, you're able to renovate it a little bit and drive the rent up a little bit to good market rates. And so uh, I get a little bit of a taste there. Doing it on an actual property, a single, I haven't done it yet. Although I'll be honest with you, I'd love to try it sometime. Yeah. I mean, trying it once and if yeah. it's all about when you buy it though. Real estate is very interesting. Yeah. A lot of this stuff you don't make money on the sale. It's you make money when you buy it. If you buy something right, you're going to probably do well. It's that expertise and learning curve for a lot of these. It's hard to break into. It's hard to get that. And you might need a partner. I'd probably recommend partnering with someone who's doing this all day, Mm -hmm. every day that understands it to learn from them, figure out if you like it or not. And if you do start expanding your little empire, it's a tough business to break in and not get your butt handed to you. Hey, I think we went through 16. Yeah, all 16. Done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Love it. (laughs) Okay, so this last part you're familiar with, we did the curbside consult. Usually ask a question on this one. This one's not a question. Peter, we've talked through 16 ways that you can invest in real estate. What are some of the things, and not all these are passive, 
But what are some of the things that people need to know about passive income? I guess it's timely that you're asking me that since I just wrote a post on it. <laughs> I love it. We'll make sure we link to it. Um, yeah, that, that'd be great. I mean, there's so many things I've learned about it on the journey over these last couple of years. It's become so real to me and seen so many different ways that people are actually doing quite well with it. I think the major point that I like to emphasize to people is that it's really, I wouldn't say a misnomer, but it's really not completely passive. There's no such thing as a you know, free income where you just go to sleep and wake up and, you know, you've done nothing, you put in no effort and, you know, next thing you know, magically money has appeared. I tend to find people want that and they ask for that actually oftentimes like in the groups, in the Facebook groups I'm part of, you know, mm-hmm. Ryan, I have a Facebook group, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> thank, thanks. Yeah. Peter's hinting at the fact that he was all excited that I joined his Facebook group and then he, he took even more pleasure kicking me out when he made it <laughs> physician only. Uh, but yes, Peter has a, a, a great apologize. Facebook group. No, it's all yeah, good. Yeah, I, I apologize. We'll start to be, we called it the passive income docs and it was, we decided to make it physician only. And unfortunately, Ryan, you know, you're an amazing part of the group, but, Pe- um, people can't see you right now, but he's just smiling. <laughs> he's, he's like, yeah, yeah. I you said, were such a good contributor to the yeah. group that we just had to kick you. <laughs> no, I apologize. <laughs> I don't want to go into why we went physician only, but it's been great for the group and the growth. That's good. But we do discuss a lot of these passive income topics. And oftentimes we get that question, what is the most passive, easiest way to create income? And I don't think that's necessarily the right question, unfortunately. And I kind of discourage them from thinking that way. Just like anything else, creating passive income is more about actually doing a lot of the work and the effort and putting in the time up front. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a lot of those rewards come on the back end. I think that's very distinctly different from what we do as physicians because oftentimes we get paid for our work and Mm -hmm. our current work. You put in X amount of time, you get paid X amount. The great thing about passive income is you can put a lot of that effort and time up front. And honestly, you might not be compensated appropriately for it in the beginning, but it continues to pay off over time. I've stuck a couple charts in some of my old blog posts, but yeah, it's like a hockey stick where it kind of starts slow and then kind of increases. I mean, I've noticed that in my blog. I've noticed that with my real estate income. Now, if you're looking for something where you just don't want to put in a lot of time at work, but makes lots of money, I mean, you're going to be taking some big risks. You're going to be chasing some possibly bad deals, possibly get scammed. And I think I see a lot of people chase those things because it just seems like easy money. Oftentimes, if it seems really, really, really easy and too good to be true, oftentimes, like they say, it usually is. That's one thing I've learned is that I call it passive income, but that's really more a reflection of like what comes on later after putting all that time and effort in front. I love it. Well, that's great advice, Peter. Thank you so much. So if people have not heard of you somehow, which I still find fascinating that maybe one or two people haven't, where can they find you? I know we've referenced the blog, the Facebook group, like let us know everything that you're doing and all the, obviously the great work you're doing uh, with curbside real estate as well. Oh yeah. Great. The blog is PassiveIncomeMD.com, and we talk about financial freedom through passive income, through multiple sources of income for physicians and you know other high net worth professionals. That's where I talk a lot about business, and I talk about real estate and these kind of things. I do. Thanks for referencing curbside real estate. That's like my passion. My uh, uh, that's a business that I run that helps physicians buy homes, and this is something that I'm passionate about. Is a lot of times in this space, I find that physicians don't have a lot of guidance when it comes to buying their own residential homes. I know it's kind of a, once you finish your training and hopefully you do this responsibly, and I'm sure Ryan, you help people make that decision in some way by counseling them appropriately. But yeah, people want to buy their own homes at some point and settle down. Nobody really tells you how to do it. 
how to go about finding a good loan, how to find a good realtor, these kind of things. And so we built a company, a service, it's a free service for physicians to help them through this process, providing education. We provide great connections of people that we vetted already that are part of our network, that are used to working with physicians, provide great loan terms. We don't do it ourselves. We don't provide loans ourselves. I want to make sure people sometimes think we have the loans. We don't. We connect you to good people. And then also for people that are relocating to certain areas, maybe they don't know any good real estate agents, we set them up with that as well. And what we do with a lot of that and a lot of the income, the reason we are so passionate, I'm so passionate about it, is that we have a big social mission aspect to it where we give to those less fortunate, particularly our passion is with helping less fortunate kids. We build orphanages and homes overseas for kids that don't have it and give access to clean water and, and provide education. On another continent in Africa, we actually have academies that we fund that teaches kids a skilled trade so they can really support themselves and some of their family. And that's something that we're passionate about. And so that's why we do this business. That's beautiful. So we've got PassiveIncomeMD and CurbsideRealEstate.com. Please go check it out. Peter's a fantastic resource. I've actually listed him in the resources on the FinancialResidency.com site because I just, I love what he's doing. Peter, thank you so much for being on. It's an honor to have you here. Cool. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a lot of fun. So today in Journal Club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site financialwellnessdvm.com titled, How to Use Soap in Your Spending Plan. It's actually a two-part series and it was phenomenal. In it, the author discusses and uses the analogy of soap to a spending plan. And she cleverly calls a budget uh, a spending plan and it, it actually does sound a lot less restrictive. And then she uses this amazing analogy, one that all of you are familiar with, to address her spending, you treat your patients in a very methodical manner every single day. And her goal, which I think she does a really good job at, is to tackle your personal finances in the same way. So I'm going to quote a few pieces of the article as we walk through this and explain how she uses the soap analogy. She says, I finally got tired of feeling like I had little control over our money and decided to act on this by making a spending plan, aka budget, that worked for our family. Subjective, lack of money management skills results in bouts of anxiety and feelings of inadequacy. Patient's financial situation is questionable. She then breaks down some numbers, introduces the reader to Dr. Jones, who's married with two kids, household income of 100K, and does an excellent job of breaking down monthly expenses, irregular fixed expenses, and flexible spending. She had some tables there that you'll love to check out. Objective. Dr. Jones spends a total of $80,900 annually on fixed expenses. She's currently tracking her flexible spending. She then breaks into annual net income minus annual fixed expenses, which are annual monthly fixed expenses plus annual irregular fixed expenses to come to what she calls the annual flexible spending amount. So in her example, Dr. Jones makes $100,000 spends $80,900 on fixed expenses, leaving $19,100 left. I love the point that she makes next, and I quote, most spending plans focus on budgeting monthly. The reason that I'm looking at this from an annual perspective is because monthly expenses can vary quite a bit. This allowed me to look at the bigger picture and account for all those irregular fixed expenses from a bird's eye view. Once I look at the big picture, 
I can then focus back down to the monthly expenses. As an easy way to see if you're on track with your spending within your flexible spending number, just divide it the annual number by 12. Assessment. She has two scenarios here. In scenario two, Dr. Jones is not in a good place. She is consistently spending more than what she makes. This does not bode well for the future unless she wins the lottery or gets a sizable inheritance. No one should ever rely on these methods to take care of their financial problems. If you're finding that the number you calculated from the flexible spending amount is too little or even negative, don't lose hope. The purpose was that you can make a plan to address this predicament. And that leaves you P, plan. For Dr. Jones in scenario two, she decided to do some extra emergency shifts. In addition, they plan to have a nice staycation versus a more expensive trip and eat out twice a week instead of four times a week. Her goal is to pay down her credit card debt as soon as possible. In my experience, I see the budget or cash flow planning as a huge roadblock for physicians. It's simply too much for them to really want to dig into, or they don't enjoy it. Maybe they're afraid of what they'll uncover, or they simply just want to do something else with their free time. And I I totally get it. But the point of this is to get a firm control over it and then set it on autopilot. Within a few months of actually understanding your cash flow, you should know how much taken out of your bank account for fixed expenses and what is reasonable to spend on your credit card. As long as you are saving or paying down debt to further increase your balance sheet, your cash flow has to be in control, but you don't need to budget to the penny. And I think Financial Wellness DVM did an excellent job with this article. I highly encourage you all to read it. I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. So thank you so much for showing us how to do it. I really, really love this analogy. You rocked it with this one. Thank you. Investing in real estate can be quite a fun way for physicians to make some extra cash. It really isn't easy, but taking advice from another physician like Peter, who's currently stomping those grounds, seems like a pretty good course of action, or at least a really good place to begin. We talked to Peter about the good, the not so good, and some cautionary tales on these 16 different ways to invest in real estate. Not to get philosophical on you or anything, but his giant list opens a window to another dimension of of real estate. Well, at least in the eyes of a physician who may be learning the real estate ropes. Whether it's managing toilet clogs or investing in mobile home parks, real estate as a source of passive income can really take your financial situation to a level that you might not have been able to imagine, especially if you do it right and you do it well. A link to more information on our guest and other resources can be found in the show notes right there on your smartphone. What, what, what are you waiting for? Just click it. Okay, so join our community on Facebook. Go to financialresidency.com community and tell us what ways are you currently investing? What ways do you wish that you were investing? Pop on in, come over, talk with us and hang out with us in the Financial Residency community on Facebook at financialresidency.com community. Take your foot off the will-do throttle and keep an open mind as you listen to this podcast. There's a lot of financial advice out there on the airwaves, including what's given to you here on an audio platter. As great as that is, it's hard to know what information suits your financial needs the best because I don't know that much about you. Consult your attorney, CPA, or reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before taking any action or making decisions affecting your hard-earned stash. 
Next week, we have a great show planned with our special guest, Nick True from Mapped Out Money. This is really a killer show. It's packed with a lot of great content. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.